in chapter 1, <clears throat> I'm not going to speak on the whole chapter, but a few verses toward the end. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And I will come near to you by judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, and there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, and that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been excelled against thee, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared this is a faithful remnant. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spared his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Let us pray. Almighty God, speak through this unworthy servant that the Lord Jesus shall be lifted up and exalted. In his name, amen.
when you read the book of Malachi, those who feared the Lord were a small remnant. What is a remnant? In Isaiah 1.9, we read these words, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and Gomorrah and have been like unto Gomorrah and our, excuse me, except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. A remnant then means a few that survive the onslaught of darkness, both moral and spiritual, by the prince of darkness that unfolds in any age. And those that are kept, they're so kept by the preserving grace of God. The first example in the Bible, of course, is Noah and his family. Can you imagine the millions of people who turned the face of the earth in his day and only eight? Only eight and made up that small remnant? And of course, Lot was preserved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the days of Elijah, who thought he was the only one left, the Lord had reminded him that there were 8,000 that still had not bowed the knee to Baal. And then 1 Kings 19, 18, we read these words. And the remnant and escape of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And the prophet Zephaniah spake of the remnant of his day in 3.13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So then, a remnant are those who are not swept away by the onslaught of darkness, energized by the prince of darkness, who invades a culture at any time and at anywhere, but are kept by the God of all grace, who preserves them for himself. Our text reveals that satanic darkness was invading the people in Malachi's day. And when God raised up his messenger, he did to speak the word of the Lord. And he addressed the darkness of sins that were defaming the honor and majesty of God. The name Malachi is found nowhere, nowhere in scripture except here. And the name according to the pulpit commentary, was probably contracted from the word Malachiah, or Malachijah, which means messenger of Jehovah, and as you read this book, he certainly was a messenger of Jehovah. His ministry took place about 100 years after the decree of Cyrus in 539 B.C., which ended the Babylonian captivity. And the prophet... Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah, who was recalled back to Susa, the capital, by the king of Persia, either because his furlough had ended or to make further arrangements to stay on as governor of Judah. And while he was gone, the people fell back to the sins they were delivered from under Nehemiah's reign. And sadly, the priests were the greatest guilt. 
These same sins were addressed by Malachi. Sins of the prophets. Nehemiah 13, 4, 9. Malachi, verse 1, 6 to 2, 9. Marriage to idolaters. Nehemiah 13, 1 to 3. Malachi 2, 10 to 12. Abuse of the disadvantaged. Nehemiah 5, 1 to 13. Malachi 3, 5. Failure to pay tithes. Nehemiah 10, 32 to 39. We just read Malachi 3, 8 to 10. With this darkness now invading his people, the Lord used Malachi, his prophet, to preach his word, to awaken the people, especially to bring them to repentance and to renew fidelity to the covenant. And I tell you, dear friends, it's time we renew our covenant with the blessed Lord who sealed his covenant with his own precious blood. It's time we get rid of him. All the darkness of sins that were coming into this people that the Lord set free from Babylonian captivity. What do you think one of the greatest sins was? Ingratitude. And that marks the church of our day. Ingratitude. You know, how can we tell? By the way we show our fidelity to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Despite all this, the Lord, through his prophet, loved them. He loved them despite how far away they had gone from him. The question could be asked, what turned the hearts of the people away from God? They were still under a foreign yoke. They knew of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16. And it goes like this. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. You see, they knew that, but they were tired of being under a foreign yoke by Gentiles, and they hated them. And they began to question the Lord's providence and power. Human nature is such in every age. <clears throat> because they began to murmur against the king, they began to murmur against the king, and how often I've heard God's people murmur against the Lord of hosts. Israel forgot what brought them into subjection to Gentile rule. And so often Christians, when they go through trying times, begin to question God. Their faith no longer shines. However, adversity and trying times are brought about many times by past sins. And this was certainly true in the days of the prophet Malachi. First, I'd like to talk about the darkness of sin, verses 13 to 15. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? They brought God down to their level. They lost all reverence and regard for the majesty and the holiness of God, which is seen in all his creative work and in his providential care, his redemptive work, how he delivered them out of Egypt after all those years of bondage in Egypt, he delivered them. They forgot about that. And how did this come about? By Israel's two great sins. They no longer feared God as their Lord, and they did not honor him as their father, even though he, in chapter 1, verse 6, he presented himself as their father. They were at war with God. 
The language that they used against God was similar to what Jude 15. You know what Jude 15 says? Four times it uses the word uh, ungodly to describe the people in his day. And not only that, but they used the language of hard, harsh, obstinate. You know what the word obstinate means? It means it conveys the idea of stubbornness, which is nothing more than pride and contempt, and that's what they had to our blessed Lord. And when there's no longer fear of God in the heart, listen to this, Satan is in control of that life, and what comes out of that person is Satan's hatred of God through his servant. It would almost seem that their desire was to turn others away from God as they were, and it was evident, which was so evident in themselves. And as it says in Job 15, 25, they stretched out their hand against God and strengthened themselves against the Almighty. This people had been rebelling against God for so long, they saw no fault in themselves. This was evidenced by the interrogation of our God. And we shall briefly look at these questions. Wherein hast thou loved us? In Psalm one, in Malachi one, three, and four, he said, "God says, I love you. Wherein have you loved us?" He says, "I've loved Jacob, but I hated Esau." And then in Deuteronomy seven, seven, he said, "You, I loved you not because you were the most of all people, but because you were the fewest of all people." The second question: Wherein have we despised thy name? Chapter one, verse six. By what they offered in sacrifice, you know what they offered him in sacrifice? They offered that which was lame and crippled and diseased, and they offered <coughs> corrupted bread. They treated God less than they did the governor. And sometimes, dear one, we treat our God less than we do a waitress that waits upon us. Third question, chapter 2, verse 14. Wherefore did the Lord reject our offering? Because they put away their wives. And God hates divorce. Fourth, wherein, house, wherein have we wearied thee? Chapter 2, verse 17. With these words, listen to these words. Everyone that doeth evil in God's sight is good. What blasphemy. Wherein have we robbed thee? Verse 3, 8. In tithes and offerings. They made light of such blasphemy. And these questions showed their irreverence and spiritual state. And I fear the church in our day has lost a sense of the ugliness of sin with a lack of reverence. We have lost a sense of the awesome majesty and greatness of our God. The older I get, I grieve when I see the Lord who created all things uphold all things, working all things, and have shown us such grace and mercy to take us from darkness to light and from the power of sin and the devil and condemnation to justification and sonship with him, and we don't treat him with the reverence and grace and majesty that he deserves.
that we need to remember is that God keeps an accurate record of what we say and do. Matthew 12, 36. Every evil word, every idle word will be given account of in the day of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. This is speaking to believers. We will stand before the king and, give, and we will see. He sees everything. The things that we do that are good and the things that we do are bad. And that's when I see... Uh, tears being shed when we see that he, he when he presents us with some of the things that we did i think that's when tears are going to be shed and then hebrew 4 13 dear ones i'm an old old sinner saved by grace but the older i get the more i'm so thankful for hebrews 4 13 for it says everything is naked naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do i am so thankful not that i'm in rigid fear but because it reminds me that he loves me so much, his eyes are upon it. Doesn't the word says the eyes are upon the righteous and his ears are open to the cry? Well, if we expect that grace, then shouldn't we live before him in a way that shows glory to his grace? The Lord's charge against the Pharisees was this, and many times I see us as like the Pharisees. This people... Yes, they unearth me with their lip, but their heart is far from me. And he goes on to say, you have obeyed the tradition of your fathers and you disregarded my commandments. Oh, there's verse reveal how much, see, our God can look inside. The, the, here we are gathered this morning, and he can look upon each one of us and know how we regard him. And he knows the spirit with which we want to worship him. Jeremiah 2, 10, 11, is respect that heathen nations have for their gods. How sad, how sad it is when idolaters show more reverence to their gods than those who claim to be followers of the true God. Just one illustration. Consider, consider the followers of Islam to Allah, to their prophet Muhammad, and to the book of the book Quran. Don't they show absolute devotion to them much more than we do to our God and Savior. We need to get back to showing the reverence our Lord deserves. And now look at verse 14. You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. God is being charged with being a selfish tyrant. It's easy to say, it's easy to get what God gives to us. It is so easy to forget what God gives to us each day. He gives us life and breath each day. He gives us rain and sunshine each day. He gives us grace, enabling grace to earn our daily living each day. He answers prayers, which are monuments of grace when we get in trouble and yet we don't reverence him more or love him more or serve him better. In this context, what probably was happening was a result of chapter 3, 8, and 10. The people were robbing God. They were not giving their tithes and offerings 
and the priests were feeling the effects of it because the priests depended upon the giving of the people. So they said, what comes naturally? What comes naturally when things don't go right? They blame God. Don't we do the same thing? They blame God. However, their complaint revealed that they only serve God for material benefit. And that in itself is a sin. Was that not true of Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira, and Simon Magus, and Acts 8? Many in the ministry of our day serve for earthly benefit, proven by the way pastors run their churches. And my niece called me a couple of weeks ago, and she said what was going on in their church. They have a gay that's part of the worship team in praising, worshiping God. And I said to my niece, I said, why do they allow that? They don't want to hurt her feelings. That's how much man-centered we become instead of Christ-centered in the church. We're concerned about our feelings. In our text, those in verse 14 were serving the Lord for earthly benefit. Not only that, by <clears throat> as you read the book of Malachi, it was drudgery for them to even serve the Lord. As it says in chapter 1, did the Pharisees serve God because of devotion to him? No. As it says in John eleven forty eight, 48, if we let Christ alone, all men will believe in him. All men will rush to him. And the Romans will come take away our place on our nation. All they cared about, they didn't care about Jehovah. All they cared about the position and authority they had over the people. Lord refers to his yoke as being light. You know why the yoke of Christ is considered light? Because it's coated with love. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the yoke of self is very heavy. Let me repeat that. The yoke of self is very, very heavy. Which these three verses make so plain. The phrase, they walk mournfully, what does that mean? They walk mournfully. Well, Isaiah 58, 3 answers that. It will help us to understand. It says, wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? In other words, don't you see what we're doing? Wherefore have we afflicted ourselves? Do you take no knowledge to what we're doing? They thought by this display of outward spirituality, they would receive some additional benefit from the Lord, which they never received and never would. And this caused them to anger against God. And like, listen to what John Calvin said. Hypocrites think that a dejected countenance is enough. And hence, they often pretend to serve sor to sorrow while they inwardly please, and flatter themselves. A hypocrite will only see his own righteousness, and that is measured by himself, and not his hypocrisy offered to God. That is why they said it is vain and empty to serve God. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you might remember that Pliable joins Christian in his journey to the celestial city, which was only for what? 
his own personal benefit. If your service for the Lord is not based on his worthiness alone, not only <coughs> to escape hell, how do you think God looks upon those with that spirit or resting upon a profession of faith only? Look at verse 15. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. And I call this maligning the character of God. The Amplified Version goes like this. In 14 and 15, it goes something like this. The Jews thought to be rewarded by the religious actions listed in verse 14. But to their great disappointment and anger, the reward they sought for themselves was bestowed upon those they hated. Oh, the ways of the Lord. All the outward performance and religious acts and activity by the Jews did not count one iota for them. And the bounty they wanted for themselves was given to their enemies. When Israel was delivered from captivity, they no longer fell into idolatry, but they still maintained that same sinful nature that brought them into captivity, so well expressed in these three verses. Sometimes God will do what seems unfair for his own divine purpose, and when he does, those are the character of verses 13 to 15, blaspheme. But true believers, true believers will sorrow and look inward to check their own spiritual state. At times to see the wicked prosper, it may affect believers as it did Asaph in Psalm 73, 1 to 15. But when the true believer, like him, they need to do what he did, get alone with God and he will remind us, <coughs> and, and, but all that the wicked have to look for is just gain in this earth, but what lies ahead? Their end is destruction. In this verse, the Jews leveled a twofold accusation against God. They accused him of receiving no divine benefit for all that they did to serve him. And two, the ungodly of those that despised the God of Israel were treated better than themselves. Let me ask you a question. Has the evil thoughts of God ever entered into your mind and heart? For not dealing fairly with you or so you, so you imagine? We forget those times we have sinned against God or went on our own way instead of God's way and put our desires before God's will and design for our lives. When we go down that path, don't be a hypocrite like these in our text, but consider all the times our flesh took precedence over what would have honored Christ. And don't forget all the monuments of grace that have adorned our pilgrim pathway. How sad, and this is really sad, when we consider the billions, I mean the billions of people upon the face of the earth, and in comparison to the billions upon the face of the earth, we are a small group Christians that are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'd think we'd be intensely grateful and thankful but in most cases, the opposite is true. How sad. 
That's sad. That is sad. And as we looked at verses 13 and 15, it would be good to see. It would be good to see what the Apostle Paul writes in his last epistle, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. And <clears throat> he said, what will be like in the last days? We're in these last days now. And what he says is directed to the church. Listen to these words. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, truth breakers, false accusers, no self-control, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, rash, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but no power thereof from such turn away. Because in some measure, I believe some of those characteristics are seen in the church of our day. Therefore, one of the reasons for this message on the faithful remnant. I'd like to talk now about the unveiling of the faithful remnant, verse 16. Some believe that these in verse 16 were awakened by the preaching of Malachi. And I thought when I read that, I thought, God will use the foolishness of preaching like man looks upon it as to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And that's what he did there. They become under such conviction of sin. They never lost their fear of God, the faithful remnant, but his preaching revived it. The fact that they thought upon his name and all that is encompassed by his wonderful name suggests they held our Lord in high esteem to his majesty, his greatness, his holiness, and all his wonderful attributes. Surely they would have talked about the wonders of all his, uh, uh, wonders of all his redemptive work. Can you, dear ones, those in his day knew about the Redeemer. Last night, yesterday afternoon, I spoke about <coughs> this the, at the funeral message in, in Long Island. And my text was, I know that my Redeemer lived. He was the oldest of all the patriarchs. But he believed in Jesus Christ. He believed in his first advent. He believed in his second advent. That's how much the Old Testament church knew. They looked toward the cross. We looked back to the cross. But they understood every bit of sacrifice and offering that was given was pointing to Jesus or the Redeemer that was spoken about in Genesis 3.15. And when the Lord hears us talking about that we understand our crimes were nailed to his cross, that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that he redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is every one that hangeth by the tree, don't you think the Lord's heart was glad to know that they understood what he did for them, would do for them? They would have spoken about his judgments. They would have spoken about 
the, the judgment in Noah's day. They've spoken about the judgment in, uh, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were talked about the judgment God reaped upon his own people in the wilderness. They were talked about that. But they were talked about his tender mercies, which are new every morning. Oh, praise his wonderful name. Oh, how we can thank thee for his holiness. If he wasn't holy, then what would our future be? But because he is holy, and he's justified us, that we understand what the evil of sin is. Yes, we still have sin in us, but his grace is greater than, and it makes us look forward to that day when we'll be with him and be like him. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be. No more sin, perfect righteousness. The king will, will rule with a scepter of righteousness. What a wonderful day that will be. And they would have spent much time discussing about the wonders of his precious word. Just like the psalmist in chapter 1, his delight was in the law of the Lord, and in his law did he meditate day and night. And what happens? He be like a tree of, <coughs> with, uh, he'll be like a tree with living waters that bringeth forth his fruit and his season, and his leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You're talking to an old, old sinner saved by grace, and I can only tell you, I failed the Lord so many times, but I cannot tell you how sweet it is. How sweet it is to live in his presence. How sweet it is just to have him as a friend. That when you're alone, you have a, someone that you can talk to and minister to, and you know his presence. What is more precious than that? The fact that they feared God. Would indicate that they were zealous for his honor expressed by David in Psalm 1 day in 1963. What did David say? I will be a companion only of them that fear God and keep his commandments. What did he say in Psalm 136? He's talking, uh, David's talking about uh, the, the Jews, not about the, uh, not about the heathen. He said, rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. And then in Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Precepts are another expression of God's word that declares and directs our duty to regard God's word and treat it not with indifference, but that God is speaking to us personally. Those who had no fear of God are like those in verses 13 to 15. They would have learned, no doubt, just think of this. If they could have done what they did to the Lord, can you imagine how disgusted and how they demeaned and hated those that uh, uh, the, uh, the faithful remnant when they gathered? Can you imagine the names that they called them? Do you think that bothered, do you think that bothered this faithful remnant? No, because the abundance of the Lord, the abundance of his word was in their heart. It didn't matter what they said didn't disturb them in the least. In every age, there's always been a remnant that has feared the Lord, their hearts in reverence to his majesty and holiness. 
and they have found his yoke easy. Yes, I have found his yoke easy. It's when I let self get in the way that it messes me up. You see, those in verse 16, they were glad to submit to the yoke of Christ. Like he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. They were glad to do that. You see, you see, the, as, as he looks upon us here this, this morning, don't you think he delights to see his people being spiritually minded like his faithful remnant were? Don't you think he delights that his people love to talk more about him than the things that are passing away? In Proverbs 27, 7, it says, no, 27, 17. We're told the iron sharpened iron and sharpened the countenance of those of like precious faith as in verse 16. Their conversation, because it's centered on the Lord, would have been living answers to prayer, forgiveness. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says this. If the Lord would, remark, would mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with him that he may, it may be feared. They would encourage, and this is what we have to do. They would encourage each other about the Lord's sovereignty over all things, including a spiritual condition that exists at that time. And the Lord is sovereign over what's happening now. But he's calling out for himself a people, a people that love him, a people that he loves. Like uh, uh, they wrote a book of remembrance about, I'm sorry. The Lord was so blessed that he said a book of remembrance was written about them who feared the Lord and called upon his name. Did the Lord mean that he was going to forget about what, was, uh, what, uh, about what they were and, and said and did? No. He said that as an honor to them. Just like when Mary, when Mary anointed his head and feet, what did the Lord say? A book, a wherever this gospel is preached, this shall be spoken of her what she did for me. And this book remembers is to lift up those who feared him, who loved him, who served him. Not because of what they got, but because of what he was and is to them. And surely they would have shared the need to be imitators of the Lord in all that unfolds in daily living. And that's what we need to do. That's why we've lost our influence. We're like the world. They, no, no longer can they see Jesus in us the hope of glory. We're to reflect him wherever we go. But so often we get angry just like the, uh, the, the unsaved. And in verse 17, as I said, the remnant had, were a special possession of the Lord. You know, in Leviticus 25, 26, uh, the Lord said about the land of Cain, this land is mine. And what he said about this faithful remnant, these people are mine. They are my treasure. Just like he said in Exodus 19, verse 5, when he said, you will be my... He said, <laughs> he said, 
you will be, he says to the, there at Mount Sinai, he said to his beloved, he said to the people that he loved, he said, you'll be my special treasure above all the people of the earth. But he said, if you keep my commandments. And the same way with us. No, we can't keep our commandments. Turn. No, we keep his commands because he saved us. We, want to, we, we keep our commandments to show that we belong to him. Just like he kept the Father's commandments and earned a perfect righteousness by his active obedience. And then by his passive obedience, he died on the cross so that we don't have to pay for our sins. And he rose again to justify us. Lord declares the remnant to be his in a very special way. Let's stand. It has also been I'm, I'm sorry. Our text can be compared with Jeremiah 24, 5 and 6. The prophet Jeremiah described the people in his day as those some were good figs and some were bad figs. And if you carry that metaphor to this day, well, we can see in our text those in verses 13, 14, 15 were bad figs, and those in verse 16 were good figs. Where do we fit in? Galatians 6, 7, it says, What's, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall reap destruction, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. In verses 13, 14, 15, they were sowing to the flesh. And in verse uh, 16, they were sowing to the Spirit. The reason I bring this up <coughs> is because I get a ton of mail, and I use it to get out the gospel, and I get so much political mail, and there's those that speak about the political this one way and another way, and, and I use it, and that's not necessary, just strike that off the record, but uh, this is uh, what I was coming to is this. Those two groups, as I said, they fit either into the one group of bad figs or into the group of good figs. But I, excuse me, but I was coming to this. I'd like to ask you all a question. How would the Lord judge you this morning as being under his authority? I want you to think about that. How would the Lord judge you this morning as being absolutely under his authority? The faithful remnant of verse 16 were. I would, this question I just asked, I'd like to give you a comment by John Calvin. Listen to what he said. In the service of God, the chief thing is this that men deny themselves and give themselves, now notice, to be ruled by God. We are ruled by God. 
when we come under the authority of his word. It has been said that worship is polluted when not given with a right motive. How can we get that right motive? Now, these next I want you to pay attention to. Because some of it is not mine. But I want you to listen very carefully. How can we get that right motive? Lay to the heart as God's word is read or preached. Psalm 37, 31. The law of God was in his heart and his feet did not slip. It said about this, about the Lord. I come, O Lord, to do thy will. Thy law is in my heart. God's word is authoritative and to hold the believer accountable to him. The great offense to God is not to give ear or heart when God speaks through his word, be it by a preacher or teacher or when we read from God's word. When we do not lay God's word to heart when it is spoken or read, we forget what we heard or what we read. The next time you listen to a sermon or read the Bible, examine your heart and judge the spirit in which you have read or have heard God's word preached. Question yourself, how many sermons have you heard and were exercised by them? And Pastor Bob has preached us many sermons where we were exercised by it, yet in a short while, you soon forgot the effect it had upon your soul. If it left no effect, the sermon heard was not laid to your heart. The way we respond to God's word tells the respect we have to be under God's authority. And if we are warned by God's word, be it by sermon or from having read from the Bible in our daily reading, and we take no heed, do you think God does not see it? Does this not reveal what we think of him and his authority over us? And just as the Old Testament church at times tread God's upon God's holy word under the feet, the same is happening in many churches today. Most churches today and their pastors pick and choose from the Bible that which they feel comfortable with and will make their congregation feel comfortable with. Texts that don't offend or convict. In other words, they treat God's word like you're going to a cafeteria. Pick and choose. Here's two examples. Joel Osteen. Now, you heard this before. He was interviewed by Larry King. And Larry King said to him, what makes you so popular? Why do so many people gravitate to, even the Yankee Stadium, so many thousands attended to hear him? And listen to these words, what he said. He said, Larry, I don't talk about hell, sin, and damnation. I talk to make them feel good so they can slide all the way slowly but surely to hell. How about Rick Warren? He said, we're going to come up with a new reformation. No more doctrine, deeds. And how in the world can you have deeds without doctrine? And when you uh, 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 relate to just deeds, you're going to be like those in 13, 14, and 15. God is holy. His word is holy. And if God elevates his word to that height, then as his word relates to our daily lives, self must be laid aside. And all must be conformed to God's holy word. Why do you think Jesus said in Luke 9, 23? Why do you think he said this? 
or you read Luke chapter 14 and 26 to 33. He said, you want to be my disciple? You want to be my follower? Then deny yourself and take up my cross and follow me. That's what he said. Yes, he said your cross, but his, our cross is his cross. And the more you meditate on the cross, and one of the, one of the reasons I really like Billy Graham, he was always bringing in the cross, bringing in the cross. That's where we, that's how we can be redeemed. We deny ourselves when we submit to the authority of God's word. Do you think the Lord would have honored those in verse 16 with a book of remembrance if they had not surrendered their lives to be under his authority or his word? No. Let us be part of God's faithful remnant in these days of great apostasy by imitating those in our text in verse 16 when the Lord refers to them as his jewel and his great treasure. And I want you to look at uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll close. Of chapter 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stole. Most commentators believe that verse 1 is referring to, this, to the, when the Lord comes again, final judgment. But John Calvin, and I agree with him, says in the context of verse 2, and of what transpired before that, it's referring to the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. And I really believe that's what it's referring to. Because of verse 2. And this destruction in verse 2 speaks to that final judgment at the end of the world. Here we see a picture of, of, of this judgment and what it's going to be like at the end of the world for the unsaved. And then verse 2. But in you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And dear beloved ones, that on October 24th, one week from today, I, a sinner who was self-righteous, oh, was I self-righteous, was humbled. And I heard the message by the preacher was not ashamed to preach the truth. And I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and healing came into my soul. Oh, precious healing. Oh, praise his wonderful name. That's what this healing is about in verse 2. The healing of our soul, pointing to the grand finale. It does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's what that's pointing to. Amen.